You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. All right. We've had some nice intimate classes. This is the fourth week of um, walking through biblical and devotional reflections on these significant prayers in the liturgy. Um, and I'd encourage you too, especially if you're new and this sort of thing intrigues you or is, is blessing you, that there's a more thorough, what I would call kind of exposition or description of our morning prayer liturgy and our Holy Communion liturgy to be had online. I taught a class, and you can choose. If you want the long version, there's a nine-week class that I taught. If you want the shorter version, there's a four-week class. But if you kind of go into audio on adventbirmingham.org and filter through my name, you'll eventually find those series of classes. If you want to be able to get more out of the liturgy, what we try to do is trace the biblical and gospel-shaped arc, go into a little bit of the history go into uh, some of the choices that Advent's made of the liturgical options out there and why we make them based on our conviction of Scripture and the Gospel and those kinds of things. This class, what we've been doing here for the last four weeks, is really just reflecting devotionally on four key prayers. The first week, three weeks ago, was the Prayer of Humble Access. And then the Morning Prayer Confession was the next week. We reflected on that. And then just last week, come on in, grab a sheet. Um, we reflected on last week the the general Thanksgiving, the kind of final Thanksgiving prayer. If you were in morning prayer this morning, you prayed it. Uh, and I hope that if you were there and some things might have been hitting you differently because they were even me as I was thinking about it, thinking about the means of grace and the hope of glory. Today, we're going to go over the post-communion prayer. Uh, and so I'd like to pray and then we'll actually read this prayer together. And then we'll go over through the scriptures and talk about a few things and hopefully... The Lord will speak to us. So let's pray. Our Father, we give you great thanks for uh, this, your day, that you've set aside for us to honor, uh, for us to receive from you those means of grace in a special way in worship, your word and your sacraments and prayer and the ministry of scripture reading. We pray that you would continually give us ears to hear and give us ears to hear in such a way where Monday through Friday, Monday through Saturday, it makes a difference before we come back on Sunday. And so I ask for those in this room that you would unstop our ears right now. Open us up to your scriptures that are displayed and exposited in these prayers and give us a heart to hear. All for your name and glory. Amen. Let us read this prayer together. Almighty and ever-living God, we most heartily thank thee for that thou dost feed us in these holy mysteries with the spiritual food of the most precious body and blood of thy Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and dost assure us thereby of thy favor and goodness towards us, and that we are very members incorporate in the mystical body of thy Son, the blessed company of all faithful people, and are also heirs through hope of thy everlasting kingdom. And we humbly beseech thee, O Heavenly Father, so to assist us with thy grace, that we may continue in that holy fellowship and do all such good works as thou hast prepared for us to walk in through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom with thee and the Holy Ghost be all honor and glory, world without end. Amen. 
This prayer is unfancifully called the post-communion prayer. Why? Because it's the prayer that follows communion, right? A lot of times we have fancy names for prayers in our liturgy, like the prayer of humble access or even the, the general or great thanksgiving or general confession or things like that. But this is just the post-communion prayer, you know, the one you pray after communion. But it's a marvelous prayer. Uh, and there's quite a lot packed in there that if you ended up, because just because you're Anglican or Episcopalian praying this and this is in your heart, you have a wonderful, I will tell you, a wonderful doctrinal summary of all the various biblical spokes, or at least many of them, about what communion's all about. And again, this isn't supposed to be a doctrinal treatise. It's a prayer, right? Uh, but the prayers of the prayer book have a wonderful quality of being able to catechize us, training us, teaching us, shaping us, forming us, making us into mature disciples. Just to give you a little hint, those words that I underlined in that prayer, I would say, are those spokes. The A lot of times, Christians, myself included, until I really started reading the scriptures about what communion was, a lot of times you and I, probably based on if we grew up in the church, you and I have a kind of one-dimensional view of what communion is. Um, and it's largely shaped by the way it was probably practiced while we were growing up. And what, what the sort of, I would describe as not only the theological content of that was, but the emotional content. What did communion feel like to you? And oftentimes, that will give you a sort of one-dimensional perspective on communion. For me growing up, um, I was in a Southern Baptist tradition, great evangelical church. And it ha- uh, communion happened four times a year. And when it did, here was the here was the ritual that accompanied it, which uh, sort of at a deep level of my psychology taught me what communion should feel like and be about. And this was the dimensional plane it was on. My dad and other deacons would dress up in these dark suits and they would stand at the four corners of the table that was on the floor, which would have a big um, a big linen over it, over the whole table. And they would very reverently grab a corner of that, pull the linen off and then fold it and it looked a lot like the way you fold a flag at a military funeral, right? They would do that, very somber, not a smile on their face, not a sort of any joy in their hearts, right? It's supposed to be... But there's a reason for that, right? Uh, I'm kind of making fun of it a little bit, but there's a reason for that. They did that, they folded it up, they moved it away, and it was a very solemn, sacred thing. And praise God for a solemn and sacred celebration of the Lord's Supper. But I'll tell you, that was one dimension. And the kind of overtones emotionally content wise that I got from communion that it was more or less like recreating Jesus funeral and remembering that you did it you killed Jesus Zach and that's that's actually a really important thing that's one of the things that I need to hear and you need to hear at the table that is our sin that put him there we do that the scriptures say in remembrance of Christ's death right so that's very much a part of it but that's one dimension You look at the underlines here, um, you see the word thank underlined, mysteries underlined. We are very members in corporate in the mystical body of thy son. Everlasting kingdom, heirs through hope of thy everlasting kingdom, grace and holy fellowship. I'll tell you that those key phrases do a wonderful job of illustrating some of the other dimensions besides the death of Christ, which, again, thank God, is at the center of the way the liturgy describes it. But here in this prayer, we've got all these various uh, spokes that we go through. But before we go too far, I want to open up to John 6. If you have your Bibles, open up with me to John 6. I will tell you that it's this 
passage of Scripture. John 6, starting in about verse 22 through 54. We won't read all the verses. But if you want what I think is a, a biblical underpinning for this prayer, here you have it. And even for what communion is, strangely enough, or at least what its focus should be and what is happening there, uh, you have something exposed and exposited by Christ himself. When he calls himself the bread of life, and when he associates himself and connects himself to, particularly an Old Testament practice of manna in the wilderness, and what this means for communion. So, starting in about verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread that the Lord had given after the Lord had given thanks. And when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, again, this is just following the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And so there's this crowd of people who's gathered because Jesus has done this. They're like, this guy is special. <laughs> so they want to follow him. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And he answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, they're probably asking an ordinary question, and like Jesus would do, he takes the opportunity to preach to them, right? Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. And then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Okay, so all of a sudden they're engaged in a pretty important conversation about how do we get to God here? And this is his response. This is important. This is where uh, Jesus uh, sounds a lot like Paul, I would say. And maybe it's more important to say Paul sounds a lot like Jesus, right? This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. What a very strange response, unless salvation is by grace through faith alone, right? This is the stage and the context out of which what follows happens. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see you and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it was written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now listen to Jesus' response. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Okay. Jesus will go on to say a very provocative statement. All right, It sounds weird sometimes to our ears. It's in our prayers and makes us, it's depending on what background we come from, might make us a little uncomfortable when he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll have no part in this life that I have. Right. So that's what he's, he's driving the, the statement to. But in this context where Jesus says, the work of God is to believe in the one whom he has sent. And Jesus starts to say, and you guys want to talk about manna in the wilderness? Let me tell you this about what was really going on then and what's really going on now. 
God was sustaining them, not ultimately through the physical bread that they were eating in the wilderness. God was sustaining them through the spiritual food. That's the word that he uses. God was sustaining them through the spiritual food uh, of my very self. Okay? So he says, look on the bread, but really I'm the true bread. Okay? It's not in this physical stuff. It's in me. I am the one who sustains you. I am your life. And I don't want to get too far down a theological road because that's not the purpose of this class. I want to do that to set the framework more to get into the devotional stuff that this prayer has to offer us today. And feel free to sort of hold on to any questions that you have. But this is where Paul, if you read Paul in 1 Corinthians, Paul makes a very powerful statement when he says, our ancestors, our Jewish ancestors in the Old Testament, ate ate bread in the wilderness and drank water from the rock. And Paul makes this powerful statement that's right in line with what Jesus is saying here. That rock was the rock of Christ. They ultimately drank and they ultimately ate in from what God gave them of Jesus himself. Jesus was their sustenance. Okay, That's ultimately what I would say is most important. The how is sometimes mysterious to us, but the what is not. When we come to the table... We come to receive the very life of Jesus into us, just like we did in the sermon when God preached to us Christ and where Christ's life was brought to us via our ears. Now, through the ears is a strange way of speaking, but through the ears of our mouths and through the ears of our noses, we hear the gospel as we taste it. We smell the gospel as we smell it. We feel the gospel as we do it. And what are we feeling? We're not ultimately feeling these physical things. We are feeling and sensing Christ himself. And so when we come to the table, it's a wonderful thing that after all is said and done, we have this prayer to pray, Almighty and ever-living God, we most heartily thank thee, that first theme, where we get our word Eucharist from, Thanksgiving, that the table is not only about the death of Jesus, but it's about a, I think it's fair to Let your mind go to American Thanksgiving a little bit. Big feast on the table. Lots of food. Everyone's happy. We're giving thanks. That's part of what this table is, is a chance to say, God, thank you. You've given me so much. And this is just a foretaste of, I thank you for that future banquet that the scriptures talk about in Revelation, that Jesus talked about in parables and another teaching. I thank you for that future banquet that's going to come for me. So one of the things we should see at this table is a little picture, a foretaste, small morsels of what will be an abundant and unending feast for us, for you and for me, where there will be celebration, the party to end all parties. Which means that maybe just as important as a somber, reverential uh, sense of what the table is, there's also celebration. There's also frivolity to be had at the table, as strange as that might be to our ears. Could that be some of the scriptural picture? We thank thee for that thou dost feed us. This next line has been the source of a lot of um, different interpretations about what the word mysteries means. If we go to the scriptures, and there's plenty of places where especially the Apostle Paul will use this word. Sometimes it's just used the way you and I would use mystery kind of in any sort of given phrase, but there seems to be certain instances when Paul is grabbing onto this word, a mysterion in Greek, mystery, to describe the nature of the gospel. 
especially if you look at Colossians 4.3 or Ephesians 6.19, he actually uses the words to describe the mystery of Christ, or he'll describe the mystery of the gospel, or he'll talk about how the Gentiles, to the Gentiles, were revealed the mysteries that were once held and kept by the Jews, you know? And he's referring to all the same things in that this mystery is ultimately that how is God, who is God and how does he work? What does he do with us, sinful human beings? This mystery has been unclouded. This mystery is revealed and his name is Jesus. And this mystery is the good news that Jesus comes into the world to save sinners like you and me. So when we say that the table, and we come to the table to feed on these holy mysteries, we're talking so much more about Christ and the gospel and not necessarily the specific elements. And a lot of times uh, there's a, a desire or a penchant to get fixated on the elements as being those holy mysteries. And we need to treat them holily. Or no, I just made up a word, right? We need to treat them in a holy manner. And while... The table and the place and those physical elements are to be treated with reverence and respect. That is not the true biblical mystery if you read these passages of Scripture. The mystery is that in the preaching of these things and in the preaching of the sermon, something's revealed to you that is the word that has the power to change your life like no other word. And it is the word that God loves you and forgives you in Christ. That's the mystery. It And it is mysterious because God, you know, for all intents and purposes, shouldn't do that necessarily. Now, God has the right. He reserves the right to deal with us according to our sins. But he doesn't because, as the prayer of humble access says, and as is true to scripture, God's property is to have mercy. His property is to have mercy. And so we come to feed in these holy mysteries. What mysteries? The gospel. With the spiritual food, all right? Spiritual food of the most precious body and blood of thy Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to camp out on this next line. Thus assure us thereby. Because I would say, if you're a Christian, I as a pastor would hope more than anything, you feel one strong sentiment as you come to the table to receive from the Lord. You feel assurance. You feel that your doubts, your sin, your uh, brokenness is assured in that moment. That you don't feel a sense of dread or awe, but that the table is ultimately there to assure you. To assure you. And the question is, what is it there to assure you? The prayer answers that. Which is why I always love, and I nearly tear up every time, if my heart's engaged with this, and I'm not just sort of robotically saying it. Every time I get to this part, I tear up because I think about myself, I think about the church truly receiving the depths of what this has to say. You do at this table assure us thereby of thy favor and goodness towards us. Not your judgment, but your favor and goodness. That's in this experience that I've had, it's a token of you saying through these ordinary means of bread and wine and ministers and other believers giving them to you, that in this very human experience that's probably full of all sorts of weird uh, not reverential thoughts when you're like, how do I kneel properly? And do I go to that part of the line? Where's the hole? Am I breaking the order? Am I bumping into people? Like all those things are just normal human experiences. In this very ordinary human moment where we're gathered around a table bowing and God gives us this bread and this wine, 
God is truly saying to you. You can take it as God saying to you, I assure you, I love you. I assure you, you are forgiven. Do you doubt? This is the place where I want you to doubt no more. I'm going to make it not only tangible to your ears in the preaching, but tangible to your fingers and to your noses and to your mouths that I am for you. I assure you of my favor and goodness towards you. That's my disposition, favor and goodness, not judgment, not condemnation. Not only do we have that assurance, but we are also assured that we are very members incorporate in the mystical body of thy son. Okay? Two things going on here that are pretty awesome. And especially if you read Paul's epistles, you get a sense. One of the things the table is there is to assure you of God's favor and goodness for you. But it's also to assure you that you are Christ's and you are in Christ. And nobody can take that away from you. Not sin, not your sin, not the sin of others, not death, not the powers of hell or the flesh or the devil. Nothing can take that away from you. The table is there to remind believers that you are a member of Christ. You are engrafted into Him. And that is unassailable. All right? That promise is for you. It is good. The table says that. All right? And that's why we pray in thanksgiving. You assure me that I am very member in corporate in the mystical body of thy son. And I'll tell you, if you're sitting there praying that and believing that, that's your promise. That promise is for you. That's for you. Not only are we members, though, in Christ, we'll see it in a second, but we're members of what it says, that holy fellowship. Another dimension of the table is not only the vertical, is not only the connection between us and God, between us and our lift up your hearts up to Christ, our, our spiritual rising up to be as strange as it is, you know, the, uh, Colossians says we are seated with Christ right now in the heavenly places. Okay, that's pretty mystical. I don't get it, but it's true. So somehow in communion, we're experiencing a sense of that union with Christ, but it's also horizontal. We're expense, we're sensing and experiencing that union with one another. One of the things I love about the table and the experience of the table as we all come forward is that it's no respecter of persons. There's no hierarchy there. You know, class, socioeconomic standards, race, all these things that just perpetually divide us in culture and probably will until we all die, you know, cease. And that's a vision of the everlasting kingdom, by the way, that there's this horizontal dimension. Not only are we needed together in Christ, but we're very members in corporate, knitted together with one another. And these things become rather irrelevant in comparison to the fact that not only am I Christ and He is mine, but I am my neighbor's and my neighbor is mine. You know, We're knitted together and our, our, our finding ourselves in Christ has us finding ourselves somehow linked to the burdens and to the joys of our brothers and sisters in Christ, which is why... Worship is never a me and God experience. If you're coming to corporate worship thinking that the only thing there is for you to receive something from God, irrespective of your neighbor, you don't get what it's fully about. You don't get that you are a very member in corporate into the mystical body of Christ and that you're there partially to worship together because you can connect with God other times. 
But you can't connect with God in corporate worship with His church at any other time, but at the time appointed by the local assembly to gather and to experience these means of grace, the Word and the sacraments, which is why it's so important to come. Uh, not because it's a rule, but because this is where God centers His life-giving work. It would be like saying, I don't, you know, I don't need that IV, or I don't need that blood transfusion. Um, I don't need those nutrients. I'll just kind of wait and till another time. Well, no, because part of what being together is, is experiencing the life of the community. Even if you don't feel it, even if it doesn't always apparent, there is deep spiritual import to gathering around the table and experiencing what it means to be very members in corporate into the mystical body of thy everlasting son. But we're not only assured of those two things, we're assured, and this is wonderful, because this is the power of the gospel. The gospel isn't just for you now. It's a declaration of what your future will be. This is the strange work that Paul was doing in Romans 3 when he said, but now God is revealing a justification that is by faith alone. This word justification is a word not only about this point in time, this present moment. It's a word about the future. What I would say is you could translate that, but now a final judgment on you has been revealed. Which is strange because my final judgment is supposed to happen in the future. But Paul strangely says, in the cross, a past event, now declares your final judgment for the future. Time's bent in on itself in the gospel. Okay, This means that you and I, as we hear, remember, receive this gospel. We know what our future verdict is when we will stand before the Lord. God is not going to play back the movie of your life and go, tisk, tisk, tisk. Look at all these sins. Look at all uh, these shortcomings. He's actually going to play back the life of Christ and say, look at your life. Well done, my good and faithful servant. That's what the cross has purchased for you, is that future moment sealed. And when we say, we are assured that we are heirs through hope of thy everlasting kingdom, that's what it's pointing to. It is saying, you are a son, you are a daughter, you are adopted in, and that cannot change. That too is unassailable. And that promise is being declared to you at the table, which is why I think it's really fitting that we see it not only as a place where we remember Jesus' death, but we also remember that He will come again and this future feast is coming our way because it's there to assure you, believer, that you are an heir, that that day of your final judgment when you stand before the Lord, He is going to declare to you, well done, my good and faithful servant, because of Christ. What a promise, right? What a promise. And we humbly beseech thee, O Heavenly Father, so to assist us with thy grace. This is the cool sort of turn. I mean, we remember, you've kind of heard throughout what I've been saying that the, the main megaphone of this table is not, watch out, these are holy things. That's not what the table's there to tell you chiefly. The table's there to tell you chiefly a gracious word from God to you, right? But here the prayer turns and we realize that this table almost has a trajectory to it. The table not only draws you in to assure you of these things, but it actually starts pushing you out to the world. 
and thus assure us, so to assist us with thy grace, that we may continue in that holy fellowship, all right, with Jesus. So as I go out into this world, God, what I've been assured of and reminded of, because I'm so forgetful, God, what I've been assured and reminded of, now help me to walk in that from Monday through Saturday before I come back to be with your people again for this sacred assembly, that we may continue in that holy fellowship. So just hold Jesus before me. And hold my brothers and sisters around me as I walk through this week. And do all such good works. And I love this echo of Ephesians 2. And do all such good works as thou hast prepared for us to walk in. So walking out of the table, we could envision as we're looking at the door that out there are good works that God's already placed for us to seize and to take. They're his good works, not ours. But they're ours to walk into and celebrate and do. And those good works are loving our neighbor. They're fulfilling your job and your vocation, whatever it is. Those are your good works to be doing. Sharing the gospel with others, loving them against other people, loving the unlovable, reaching out to people on the street. Those are the things that God's prepared for you. Open your eyes and recognize that God's gone ahead. He sowed those seeds and he's placed those good works for you to go sort of step into and grab. I love the nature of that prayer. All in the end, through Jesus Christ our Lord, whom with thee, which is wonderful, just Trinitarian ending that ends all our prayers to remind us that our God is a unity and yet three persons, through Jesus Christ our Lord, whom with thee and the Holy Ghost be all honor and glory, world without end. Amen. We could go on, but I thankfully have left time for some questions. So, do you have questions or thoughts or anything stirring in your heart that you want to reflect on? So the word mystery means sign. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you think that is? Because there are there are two different words. There's a there's a Greek word musterion, and there's a Greek word semeion, and uh, they both kind of float in different camps. So, what do you think? What do you think mysteries? Well, well I mean, at first I thought, oh, you know, it just means sign, so that kind of, you know, just clears it up, it's easier, it's just, you know, these are just signs pointing to God's grace, but but now thinking, well, there are two different words that could have used, right. you know, mystery, maybe even there is no, this is not just elements. There's something more to them. Right. Um, yes. Yeah, I think so. Them, right. We don't worship them, but we recognize that they, it's mysterious in the sense of they are ordinary elements. It's To put it crassly, it's just wine. It's just bread. And yet God says, I'm going to reserve some very specific communication to my people to happen in these things. And I think that that's a very appropriate way to describe like the mystery of that. Because I don't get how it happens. And unfortunately, we Christians have tried too hard to answer that question, you know, which has gotten us into all kinds of debates and trouble rather than just to sort of cling to the Word of God where it is clear and hear the, the megaphone that we're supposed to hear, you know. Uh, but it is. It's a, it's a wonderful and beautiful place where God says, I'm going... Just because it's my will, ordinarily, this is the way that I'm going to supernaturally declare to you a very clear gospel in a way that you can 
hear it. And in, in a way that I don't, I won't ordinarily do it through other means. I'm choosing these means, these human means of a, a broken human preacher in a pulpit to do some pretty supernatural work of speaking to my people and of bread and wine and a table and human beings grabbing them and distributing them and you receiving them. I'm going to do something supernatural through them. That is mysterious. I don't fully get it. But that is a, that is the crux of these holy mysteries, that the gospel comes to me there and that's what I'm to hear and receive. It's good. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, definitely. You, you don't. There's not. You don't receive communion alone. <laughs> yeah. 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 It is. It's a. It's a wormhole or a portal where heaven meets earth, and where our future. Um, as one worship theologian put it, uh, he says, our, the future puts forth its buds in the present. You know, we get a sort of, sort of short circuit between the future new heavens and new earth and the present at this table. Oh, would to God that we would have eyes of faith to be able to see that and grab, grab onto that more. Because certainly if we saw that, all kinds of assurance really would come flooding our way. <laughs> What other questions or thoughts do you have? Well, it's not unique to this prayer, but the plural of we and us, sort of expanding on the yes. corporate. Yeah. I just remember Lewis spoke often, or, or at least well, of the community and that uh, trying to be a Christian by yourself won't work. Right. If you lose... He, he gave the example of um, in that uh, small group that they had of uh, I forgot now what the, he called their the inklings. Group. Yeah, yeah. Um, that uh, when uh, one of the members um, died, he said, "I thought that would give me more right. of one of the other people." But the what I really found was that I, that one person exposed aspects of the other people that I would not have known otherwise. Yeah. And I just love that yeah. idea of members in corporate all together. I think there's more that could be expanded upon there. But That's right. Um, That's a good word. It's a really good word. Anything else? Reflections or questions? Yes, he was. Right. That's right. And what a what a rich image to have in our minds as we come to the table that we're spiritually wandering in the wilderness here, and God graciously gives us manna, as Jesus said, myself, the bread of life, 
a place where we come and God assures us of the unassailability of His love and goodness in a, in a really tangible way. That's a good word. I like the favor and goodness. I think, you know, like you, I grew up thinking communion was like doing my penance of rehashing how awful I was and how sorry I was for my sins and just this like mourning every time of, I'm so sorry, God, thank you for dying for me. I'm so sorry, I'm so terrible. You know, and not hearing the word of, I love you. Right. There's a gift to that. Like, I can it look is. forward to that. I kind of used to dread. Yeah. Right. And like, oh, we have to do communion. Right. I well, I wonder sometimes when you have a, a really negative view of it's not negative, it's just it's sort of the darkest hue of the rainbow of communion. Um, that was a funny metaphor. Anyway, um, you know, when you only have that as your picture, it is a little bit hard to want to to sort of get excited about <laughs> receiving it when it's sort of yeah. You killed Jesus, and look look at you. And um, when that's the only thing that's there, and and then on the other side of I killed Jesus is not is, uh, but he did it out of love. He received it out of love for you, and he rose for his very murderers to receive fellowship, love, and uh, life eternal with God the Father. I mean, that's that other side. You know, that's the rest of the rainbow. Yes. And so it's like here, you know, the wine is feasting. So it's like this great banquet of feasting and drinking this wine is so great. And it's like, yeah. Right. But this came through judgment. Um, Jesus was crushed. Yeah. Yeah. To take in this joy. There is an interesting connection between blood and wine in Scripture. And one of the things that someone observed uh, about Jesus' first miracle, turning water into wine at the wedding at Cana, was that Jesus was setting himself up to be a new Moses, saying, whereas Moses turned the water into blood as a sign of judgment, I turn the water into wine and replace sort of I spill my blood so that I can turn water into wine as a sign of the future banquet and feast. What a wonderful thing to leave you all. God's grace and peace be with you this week. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.